Welcome to PA Centered, a podcast designed to help listeners be a part of the solution to end sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Each episode, we will take on a topic or current event to help spark conversation and break down barriers to building communities free from sexual violence. I'm Jackie Strom, the Prevention and Resource Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. I'll be your host today as we're joined by Tammy Burke, Manager of Community Services at Victims Resource Center, to talk about male survivors of sexual violence. Tammy has worked at Victims Resource Center for 31 years. The majority of that time was spent providing services to victims of crime, specifically with adult survivors. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Jackie. So we were lucky enough to have Tammy recently facilitate a webinar on the same topic for Pennsylvania Rape Crisis Center staff, but we feel it's such an important conversation that we also wanted to talk about it on the podcast. So my first question that I have um, is thinking about whenever we talk about sexual violence, we hear less often about male survivors, despite the high rates of violence that they experience. And so could you start off by telling us about how many men and boys are affected by sexual violence? Jackie, and I think that society is well aware that women and girls are often victims of sexual violence, but somehow society fails to recognize that men and boys are also victims of sexual violence. Um, I think many centers know one in four girls are sexually abused and one in six boys, but I don't know if society recognizes that one in six boys are victims of sexual violence because we spend a lot of time talking about female sexual violence. One in 33 men will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. And it's estimated that 92,748 men are raped in the United States every year. One out of every 10 rape victims are males. And I don't know if we ever recognize that either. We know how often women are sexually assaulted, you know. Um, The Department of Defense statistics state that 38 military men are sexually assaulted every day. Every day. And it's estimated 300,000 inmates are victims of sexual assault each year. Um, And that, so when I really try to think about males and how often they're sexually, you know, victims of sexual violence, if we took like 25% of the population of males who've been sexually assaulted, we looked at Beaver Stadium, you know, Penn State Stadium, that could fit 106,000 people. If the audience was solely male, that would mean that at least 25,000 men have been or will have been victims of sexual violence. And um, I think that a lot of us aren't, aren't aware of that. And I also think that these stats might be a little bit off because I think it's underreported, you know? So, um, But what I have to wonder is if there's that many, where are they and why don't we know about them? Yeah. And that's why we wanted to have this conversation, right? Like you said, our rape crisis center staff um, should hopefully understand the magnitude of this problem and how it affects male survivors. But the general public might not be as aware of how often, like the statistics you just read to us, Um, how often it's happening every single day. And you mentioned that um, we might not even have all of the statistics, right? Because Mm -hmm. of reporting. Right. So could you talk a little bit about um, some of the barriers to reporting and why why you think so few men 
are like coming forward and why they report less often. Okay. So I think there's different barriers to, to males reporting. You know, one is society barriers, one is our agency barriers and, and you know, community um, agency barriers, but also um, male barriers. So if we looked at the society barriers, um, I think the huge part is the lack of awareness. As we said before, all the statistics, I don't think many people know. I think I know and um, people that work in centers like mine have a, a good idea, but I think the rest of the world have no idea how often it happens. It's also, I think society's response to male victimization is really different um, when the victim is a female, you know? Um, I think that um, males who express their feelings openly are considered weak and unstable and unreliable. You know, the cultural norms of masculinity versus female norms of femininity. Um, and I think many of the times that we hear the words men and sexual assault, I think people automatically assume that males are the offender. And we forget that. So think about being a male and think about going to tell somebody and are they going to think that I'm an offender? Um, society um, has failure, failed to recognize even the fact that boys were sexual abused until Sandusky, right? And I can remember, I mean, I remember clear as day when that happened um, and a couple of different things happened. I remember somebody saying, I had probably been at the agency about 20 years and somebody saying, I'm enraged that this happened to these boys. And I said, I've been enraged for 20 years. This didn't just happen. And um, I'm glad that things came to light. Not that that happened, but do you know what I'm saying? Like it brought a little bit of a focus that this can possibly happen to males. Um, and I also thought about um, at that time, when we talk about how differently people respond and society responds, I was at one of our county courthouses um, right around the Sadusky um, when that was going on. And what happened was, you know, I was waiting with, you know, defense attorneys and attorneys and actually it was a defense attorney who walked in and he like knew everybody in the courtroom and we were waiting for something to happen. And he started like actually made a joke about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And somebody turned to me and said, what do you think? And I said, I don't think there's anything funny about sexual abuse, but they wouldn't have done the same thing if I'd been a female. I really think that everyone's response would have been really different had they that been females. Um, I think that they think that it's impossible for a male to be raped. Um, I think that men are often met from with society from invalidation and victim blaming statements such as, you, how could you let that happen? They minimize the impact of the sexual assault and sexual abuse on male victims. Um, then we have agency barriers. I think one of the huge barriers is that um, the lack of outreach. I think many males have no idea that centers across Pennsylvania are for males and females. I think that when we think about a rape crisis center, I think we think about females and we think about kids. So one of the agency barriers is not doing enough outreach. Um, again, I and I mentioned earlier that I think that um, male sexual abuse is understudied and, um, and underreported. I think some people working at agencies are uncomfortable. They don't know what to do when it comes to a male. Um, lack of resources. I don't think that we always make ourselves approachable. I don't think that all centers make themselves approachable. Like by doing things that say, hey, we serve males, you know? Um, and sometimes I think it's personal bias. And I think in order for centers to really become more supportive of males, it has to start from the, the top down. You know, um, we need boards on, you know, the, the board of directors, we need the executive director, you know, any other managers all the way down. We need the support from them. I know that um, 
when I was doing male survivor support group, when I would do a female support group, I ended with t-shirts and we did the clothesline project with, for the women, but I couldn't do that with the males because it was a loose for females. So we came, um, we did some brainstorming and we talked to the male, the male um, group participants and we came up with, we would do the same thing, but we would do it with sheets and they were able to cut a piece of blue sheet out of how, whatever size they want to display, you know, how they were feeling and what they wanted to express. They did that. And I brought it back to my office and it was hand sewn on top of a queen sheet. And that was the executive director who sat and hand sewed that. So, I mean, like I've always had the support through the agency. And I think that, you know, the, the directors and the board need to recognize that, that the importance of supporting um, our work with working with male survivors. And then male barriers, it's got to go back. They're not saying anything because responses by society and community professionals. I've worked with males who said that they've gone and they've talked to other uh, professionals out in the community who kind of even grimaced when they started to mention that. I had another male um, that I had met you know, in a drug and alcohol facility. Um, and I said to him, he had disclosed his past victimization. You come in and talk to me. He said, I already talked to a therapist for 15 years. Finally, one day he agrees to come in and talk to me. And I started doing some counseling with him. And he looked at me like, what are you doing? And I said, we're going to talk about victimization. And I said, did you do that work before? He said, no, I saw her for 15 years. She never asked me any questions about the sexual abuse, but I thought that, you know, that might've even been her own, like being uncomfortable with it, you know? Um, the question about their sexual identity, you know, that often um, males can be, who are sexually, uh, victims of sexual violence have been sexually assaulted by another male or sexually abused by another male. And that's really confusing, you know, and they're really worried about, they question their own sexual identity, but they're afraid to say it out loud because they're afraid other people will question their sexual identity. Uh, I think, and there's um, lack of support and the lack of resources you know, things that we don't want to talk about, but even confusion about their bodies responding. That's so evident and nobody wants to talk about that, you know, and I think that those are the important things that, that and there's a confusion regarding that. Um, they're seen, um, if they're afraid that they tell them they're going to be seen as weak and manly, you know, boys and men are socialized to see themselves as tough and strong. And we do that every day, society, not we, I shouldn't say we, I think society does that when we're raising kids in general. You know, if we had, a little bull, little girl and she was skipping at a, you know, at a picnic and she fell and she started crying. You know, every, the society would pick her up, you know, tell her it's okay, give her a kiss on the knee and whatever it might be. And, you know, until she stopped crying, but when it's a little boy, you know, and many times society responds really differently, like be a man, really three, be a man, you know, shake it off, you know, stop your crying and stop being a girl. And we go on. So we kind of like already shoved them down at age three and younger. You know, um, so they're kind of taught to act like a man, you know, and what they're taught is that good men are physically strong, they're heterosexual, they're, un they're unemotional, they show no pain, they're brave, they're courageous, um, they're not feminine, they're the ones that are in control, they show no fear, and if you fall out of the box and they've got to ask themselves, am I really a man? You know, so that's part of the fear, that's what, with male barriers, you know, and um, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time and I've worked with many males, you know, that I often think about the one male that I worked with who was 75. It took him, he was age 75 by the time he walked into my office. And I thought, what could have been a little bit different for him had somebody talked to him 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, you know, the difference. Um, 
So that's some of the things I think that we need to change and we need to work on. And that if we can work on some of that, you know, maybe it would, you know, decrease the secrecy and the delay in reporting and the shame, you know? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's in my line of work, right? I talk about prevention all day with folks and a lot of the things that you're describing centers are working on those things in schools and community groups, trying to um, really get away from those myths about what it means to be a man or a woman, right? Move away from those traditional gender stereotypes. But um, it takes all of us to make sure that we're raising the next generation of kids who understand that, you know, you're, it's perfectly normal to have emotions and to have feelings and um, yeah, I think your example about the children hurting their knees, um, we see that play out all the time. And so I think you're right. If we could really start trying to get these messages out to kids and to caregivers, right? Mm-hmm. Parents and caregivers Absolutely. as young as possible that we'd be able to, you know, maybe, maybe turn this around a bit, but So not just talking about the barriers, but talking about some of the long-term effects of keeping it to themselves or um, not receiving help. I know you talked about your client who was much older when they came to talk to you, but what are some of those effects um, and how does it affect men who are survivors who don't disclose for most of their lives? And I think, I think that we know that males are less likely to report sexual abuse, um, to identify the experience that they had. Sometimes they don't even, can, they can't even like identify that it's abusive, you know, and um, to seek support, formal treatment, you know. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, depression, alcoholism and drug abuse, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, problems in intimate relationships, underachievement at school and at work. You know, and I often wonder how many, if we could have educated more of, you know, the teachers, would they have been able to pick up on some of that? Um, And that males, adolescents who were sexually abused are three to five times more likely to engage in delinquency. You know, I've done outreach to, you know, some of the local juvenile detention centers. You know, I think that we need to be aware of that too. Um, and I've done some trainings with, with the detention centers just for, so that they have a better idea of how often, you know, male sexual abuse and sexual violence happens. Um, I think confusion of emotional needs with sex, multiple compulsive behaviors, physical and emotional symptoms, self-victimization, really big high risk taking, um, chaotic relationships, you know, and as I said earlier, throughout my 31 years that I've worked with many, many male survivors between the ages of two and 75, you know, so at, when you asked me to do this, you know, um, and I was thinking about, you know, some of the things that I thought was important to say, I really thought about a lot of those males, those men kept just popping through my head over and over again, you know, the man, the more, the boys, the men. Um, and what I can tell you is that, you know, I think that we have, you know, no matter what the situation is, a lot of people have in their mind what a victim looks like. You know, um, that the the males that I worked with, they came from all different walks of life. You know, they were Marines, they were National Guard, they were truck drivers, they were homeless, they were those with addictions, they were construction workers, they were businessmen, they were inmates, you know, they all walks of life, you know, they were in, this is the other, you know, part that I thought about is that when 
you know, agencies aren't becoming more approachable and it's across the United States. It's, I'm not talking about Pennsylvania. It's across the United States because I've had the opportunity to meet with men that um, finally had the courage to pick up the phone and they were denied services. You know, um, I had done a training in Minnesota and I had, I was, um, it was absolutely wonderful and I was kind of honored about the experience, but I was part of the, um, I was able to present at the, Male Survivors International Conference. So there were men from all over and I got to work with the survivors. Um, and there was two different men that really stick in my mind. One was from Minnesota and he said that he picked up the phone to call somebody in his late twenties because he couldn't deal with it anymore. And he called the center and the center said, if you're over the age of 13 and you're a male, we won't talk to you. Will you imagine the first time you pick up the phone and that's what happens? I also met, met another man who could not find services in his, his city. He was from the East Coast. He became a flight attendant, and every time he had a layover, he was looking for somewhere where somebody would um, help him work through his past victimization. And I thought that was really sad, you know, to think that he had to, you know, go all over the place. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I worked with these men, they were fathers, and they were brothers, and they were sons, and they were partners, and they were friends. So for anybody listening, you know, the majority of these men that I work with never told anybody until we did some of the outreach and we, and we talked to them or, or, or by, you know, word of mouth, they, they found out about this. I want people to think about just for one minute, I want you to think about one of those males in your life that you, that you really love and you really care about. And they finally make the decision to reach out and they have no idea who to call or they finally make the call and they're turned away. And that's the stuff that really needs to change Jackie, you know, and it starts with us. Um, you know, as I work with those males, some of the things um, that I learned from them, you know, that's how, I mean, I think I know a lot of this is, is hands-on stuff, you know, I mean, I know I did a lot of reading and a lot of trainings and all those things, but it was hands-on and working with them, you know, are the ones they said they didn't know who to call, um, that not all social services were willing to work with males, men's don't cry, especially Marines. Um, I've worked out my whole life to be strong and to prove to others that I am, I am a man. Um, I really thought um, that when my 17 year old babysitter was touching me, they were teaching me about sex. And when I finally told somebody, um, they told somebody else in their family and they said, that's just part of a learning experience. But then this is this 11 year old. Again, that's when we think about that. And I think that's why males are often confused by that is that society's response. You know, if we had a 30-year-old male who was having sex with a 15-year-old girl, we'd call them a child molester or a sex offender, right? And we would be upset by that. And then we have a, a 25 or 30-year-old female having sex with a 15-year-old boy, and he's talking to his friends about it, and they're like, ooh, way to go, you know? Even some dads are patting him on the back going, that's my boy. And we, we, you know, we need to start seeing that differently. That's not a male's first sexual experience. That's sexual abuse. Um, but that's so the man that stuck, kind of stuck out in my head. He finally tells somebody about the babysitter. And when he was telling me that in one of the groups I was doing a drug and alcohol, he really believed it was okay. He really thought that that was a normal, a normal everyday thing. Um, I work with men that are afraid to hug their children or, or, to, or to touch any, you know, you know, children in their family, their nieces, their nephews, whoever it might be, they're afraid to, to touch a child. They, you know, they, they won't do any parts of the caretaking, the child caretaking at home. They don't want to give their babies a bath or the kids a bath but, um, or take care of diaper rash. I had an adult male 
um, call me that his wife was working. He was home with the baby and the baby had diaper rash in at certain like twice a day or something. This baby was supposed to have cream put on her and he couldn't do it. I mean, I had to talk him through the hotline, like the, explain to him that wasn't being abusive. There was nothing wrong with that, that he just really needed to put the ointment on the baby. Um, you know, um, one of the things that I learned from men is that you don't need to be a male to work with males. I think that was a big question people would ask me, especially when I started the male support group. People are like, Tammy, you're a female. I'm like, well, somebody has to do it. I don't have a male working for me. And I don't think all centers have males working for them. Uh, but I think about this one guy. Um, he was part of the group. Um, and I was outside waiting. The group started in the evening. It was in the summertime. So I was outside waiting for them to come in because the door I had to keep the door unlocked. And he comes walking down and he's complaining about another agency he had been at and that he doesn't think females should be working with males. And I looked at him and I go, I'm a female. And it was like the first, and he kind of like did a double take. And I, and I thought he didn't notice a gender. He just felt like if he felt safe and supported, he could talk. So, you know, I think that don't worry about questioning about if we only have females working at centers, we can still provide that service. Um, you know, and then when I, you know, this is a huge one. I think when they're question, when they question or society questions their sexuality, because nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about, you know, the impact that it has. I think that they try to prove to themselves and others that they're heterosexual. You know, that's one of the things I worked with the male in the beginning. And he would often talk about, you know, dating situations, you know, and I finally figured out, I mean, this is early on before I was really doing the work. I thought that's what he's trying to tell me, you know, um, that they were trying to prove to himself. Um, and I think, I mean, I mean, I could go on for a long time, Jackie, about all the things that the men taught me. Yeah, it sounds like they've taught you a lot. I know I'm learning a lot and I hope folks that are listening are able to um, pick up from all of the lessons that you learned and the experiences that you had to, to figure out how they can work better with the male survivors in their lives, um, which really leads me to my next question. And you've talked about this a little bit, um, but there are misconceptions that people have about working with male survivors, especially like you just said, right? Does it have to be a male who's doing that work? Um, and so what advice do you have for counselors and advocates who are working with this population? I think one of the things is to really kind of, and I don't like to use the word myth, but dispel them. Do you know what I mean? That we need to, you know, see, number one, they're not offenders. And I'm going to say that again at the end. They are not offenders, you know, um, because these myths make it harder for men to talk about the experience of sexual assault, make it harder for them to find support, make it harder for them to report the offense to the police. Um, and it also makes it harder um, to prosecute someone who commits a sexual assault. Do you know what I mean if we don't have, you know, a victim that's willing to, um, that, that is really struggling with coming forward or, or not getting what they need throughout the criminal justice system, you know? Um, and also when we think about the myths, you know, the stronger the individual believes in the myths or the stereotypes of male report rape or sexual assault, um, the more they'll place the blame on the male victim and they take away the blame from the offender. When we are really looking at these myths uh, with any sexual assault victim, Jack, and we know that you know we find ways to judge and to blame you know victims for a lots of different situations. You know about the way they dress or what they were wearing or if they were drinking or whatever it might be. But the more we we fall into these myths and these stereotypes about male survivors, um, we're going to place 
the blame on the males and we're going to take the blame away from the offender. And this means that um, we need to educate ourselves and the community on the impact of male sexual violence. So start by believing. Know the stats that I talked about and recognize the fact that they're probably underreported. Um, and then find ways to become more approachable, you know. And so when we think about, you know, maybe being uncomfortable with that, you know, I, you know, I know that I said this a couple of times, you know, through, through different trainings that I've done, you know, we've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. We don't. But I think as a counselor advocate for 30 some years, um, I've been in a lot of situations that were uncomfortable, but I did what I needed to do. So, and the more that we do, um, the more comfortable we become, the more, you know, experiences that we have in working with males. Um, so number one, provide the same services you would to anybody else, anybody else. You don't have to know all the answers. I tell people this all the time in the communities. You don't have to know all the answers. All you have to do is be kind, just be kind and listen, you know, um, if you're not, it's okay. It's okay. If you're not comfortable at first, just keep doing it. Um, I think that it's important that we do more of the outreach, you know, and if you can get yourself out there, um, to, um, in other community settings where there's, where there's males and females, but that we can just talk about that. We, you know, these are the services that we provide and our services are to males and females. Um, you know, and that we don't just provide services like the crisis, you know, the initial crisis, you know, it's years later, it's years later. So, you know, don't, you know, go into all different groups, all different age groups, you know, that you'll be shocked. I did a mandated reporting training one time to foster grandparents and somebody came up to me at the end and said, I never told anybody and they were in their 80s. You know, it's never too late to reach out to anybody. It's never too late for somebody to seek services. Um, recognizing that it can affect anybody. Again, Marines and, you know, the army and the truck drivers and all those people that we think are big and tough, you know, sexual assault does not discriminate. Sexual violence doesn't discriminate. And I already mentioned this before, but we need to start from the top down. You know, I think that, you know, and, and dual centers, I think that it might be a little harder for them to work, you know, sexual assault, domestic violence centers, because I think when we think about domestic violence, the majority of the time it is a female, but although it does happen to males, and you still need to be open to talking to them about that too. But um, I think, you know, for many years, they probably, there weren't males, you know, involved in their, in their um, services. That is a lot of great advice. Um, and I know you've talked about how important it is to do outreach. And so I guess I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit more about that by um, answering my last question, which is what can rape crisis centers do to better serve male survivors in their communities? It's the outreach. They're not coming to you. They do exist. So now we have to go find them. And I figured that out a long time ago. They weren't coming there. So, you know, outreach, 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 you know, um, going to providers and talking to them. But then, you know, the more you have the opportunity to talk to though, you know, the other agency's clients, the better, you know, go in and, and talk for a few minutes, you know, um, drug and alcohol. That was where I first started. You know, I went to rehabs and then I ended up doing groups in the, in the halfway houses, you know, but just going in and talking that they're incarcerated, 
you know, so that we got to reach out to, you know, there's PREA. I won't spend a, whole, a lot of time talking about the Prison Rape Elimination Act, but, you know, in the counties that I serve, I had, well, one just closed, but I had two state prisons that I made sure that I did outreach. I had connections with them. And in all three counties, I have connections with the county jails. You know, also, you know, that includes services to females, you know, the county jails. Um, the military, I did some work with Toby Hanna, and I was able to attend some of their sexual assault response team meetings. And at one time before um, the person took another position, the sexual assault response coordinator used to attend um, Luzerne County sexual assault response team. So, you know, making yourself available and opening um, word of mouth, the more that you get out there and say, other people are going to recognize that our agencies are here and that we provide those services. Um, make sure that when you're doing information tables that there's stuff about the services that you provide to males. I mean, PCAR has a male brochure. Um, I, when I talked earlier about the blown in the wind project that during sexual assault awareness month, I made sure that that was hung up at, you know, I actually have a couple of those sheets now because I was able to meet with a lot of survivors to complete that, but um, they get hung in different places. They would be hung at some of our, our um, local colleges and universities. Um, educate yourself so that you can go out into the community and make referrals. You know what I mean? Like educate. So you want to get the referrals. We need to know the information. Recognize your personal biases, become more approachable. And I know I said that, but these are the most important things. You know, recognize that personal bias, become more approachable. Taking the first step, becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable. Attend trainings, look it up, find them, they're out there. You know, um, educate the community agencies and the males on the number of services. That's great. Sounds like there are so many things that people can be doing to better serve male survivors in their communities. So Tammy, I want to say thank you so much for joining us to talk about male survivors. That's unfortunately all the time that we have today, but I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of PA Centered. And to find out more information, you can visit us at pcard.org. Thanks. Thank you. If you or a loved one needs help, a local sexual assault center is available 24-7. Call 1-888-772-7227 for more information or find your local center online at pcar.org. Together, we can end sexual violence. Any views or opinions expressed on PA Centered by staff or their guests are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of PCAR or PCAR's funders.